Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome to another week. Yeah, thank you. Another week of virtual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, next time we'll be in person. We'll be in person. It's already been two years since we did all of our virtual episodes during obviously COVID and shutdowns and just social distance stuff, which is crazy. About two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Crazy how fast time flies. Yeah. It also seems like it was a decade ago, but also maybe last week. And I can't tell which. Right. Well, we'll eventually figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But two years, I guess is what the calendar would say. What do we have today for listener questions? We got a question from John. You want me to go ahead and read it? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. John says this. He says, hey, guys, I love your show and appreciate how easy you make it for me to understand the keys to personal finance. Thanks, John. Glad to hear that. Yeah. He then goes on to say, my question is, does it make sense to track my investments in my 401k and Roth IRA purely off of the projected rate of return that people suggest, typically between 7 and 10%, mm-hmm. or should I track my investments based upon the inflation-adjusted return rate? I'm asking this as a 23-year-old who sees a million dollars as a very attainable goal with a Roth and or 401k, but when you factor in inflation each year, I'd say 3%, that million dollars seems more challenging to accomplish. Yeah. Should I track my portfolio values off of the standard 7 to 10% growth rate, or should I take a more conservative approach and track them off of a 4 to 7% growth rate so I can have a better understanding of what I am on track for? Thank you for any guidance you have on this and keep up the great work. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. We can definitely provide context on this. Yeah. So we kind of need to give a little context around what a nominal rate of return is and what a real rate of return is. Let's start with that. What's the difference between a nominal return and a real return? What's more important? How do I think about that? Lay it all out for us. Yeah. So, well, please add color as we go along too, but- Yeah. I just asked you five questions in one. Let's start with what do they mean? Right. So, well, let's just think about it really simplistically. The S&P 500, if we look back over data as long as we can, has had a rate of return around 10%. Yep. Right? Now, that 10% is really the nominal rate of return. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? I basically mean, well, that's the return that happened by investing and walking away and coming back next year, and then walking away and coming back next year. And the value just kept going up, right? By about 10% per year. Obviously, some years were up, some years were down. We've talked about that in length before about timing of returns for the S&P 500. But if we think about, well, what else is happening? I don't know about you, but every time I talk to get around my parents or grandparents, we would always talk about how much it costs for them to like go to the movies or buy bread or buy a gallon of gas. Like I remember when I could get gas for a dollar a gallon as a yep. kid. Mm-hmm. Right now with the war in Ukraine, it's like $6 a gallon around here. Mm-hmm. Even without that war, the price has gone up over time. And that is inflation, right? That's the cost of a good is going up over time. Yeah. So it costs more to buy a gallon of milk than it did 10 years ago. And that's the case for most 
things in our lives that we consume. So if we take the nominal rate of return of 10% and then we say, okay, long-term inflation has been around 3%, well, then the average real return would be the nominal return minus inflation would give me a real return. Yes. 7%. Yes. Why does that matter? That matters because we're trying to target, I know I need some dollar amount to live life now. And so I can get a sense of if I know that a sustainable withdrawal rate is like 4% and maybe I need 40 grand to live life. Well, then I need like not dealing with taxes right now, just simple math. I need a million dollar portfolio to retire. That's my financial freedom number. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think the question that John's asking here is, well, do I track my financial freedom number with a nominal return or a real return? Yeah. And I think you can do it either way, as long as you understand what each number is telling you. Where the number that we're all familiar with, when people talk about how much their favorite stock went up, or when people talk about how much their 401k is up, or when people talk about all that, that's the nominal return. It's the number you actually see on your statement or your financial snapshot or whatever. It's how much your money grew, but your real return is the actual increase in purchasing power. Because if inflation is going up at the same exact rate that your nominal growth is going up, you're growing your money, but you're not actually growing your purchasing power, which as consumers is what we actually care about, our ability to maintain lifestyle and increase our purchasing power over yep. time. So to John's question, you can certainly track either, but like we're saying, just understand the difference in what you're tracking. And I think that it depends on what you're trying to do. So for example, John, if you are trying to estimate the value of your future portfolio, say when you're retired, but you want to have an understanding of what's that the equivalent to in today's dollars, you might use a real return estimate. For example, if you said, okay, maybe between your Roth IRA and your 401k and your employer match, maybe you're saving, I'm just making this number up, $10,000 per year. Well, what if you save that $10,000 per year? And what if you do that over and over and over again for the next 40 years until you're 63 years old? And what if you get the exact long-term rate of return that the S&P 500 has averaged historically, which is 10% per year? Well, if you did that, invested 10,000 per year for 40 years and grew at 10%, you would have over $4.4 million in your portfolio. That's a good amount of money. If you did the same thing at a 7% rate of return, which is the real return historically of the S&P 500, so again, the nominal return minus inflation, if you did that same example, but used a 7% rate of return instead of 10%, you wouldn't have 4.4 million. You'd have closer to about $2 million. So both are telling you a story. The first is telling you how many dollars you would have in 40 years, which is about 4.4 million. The second is telling you what's that the equivalent to in today's dollars, which is right about 2 million. Yep. And then as Scott mentioned, the nice thing about that is you can say, okay, if I have the equivalent of $2 million in today's dollars, but in the future, if I know I can maybe take four or 5%, whatever it is, let's just say 4% for my portfolio, you're on track to be able to create what I would consider passive income of $80,000 per year starting in 40 years based upon that projection. So that's kind of, we're splitting hairs a little bit here, but that's the key difference I would say between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. Any that's- color that you would add to that or is that all sound about right? No, I mean, that's the basics of the real return versus the nominal return. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we don't actually know what inflation will be year over year over year, right? More recently, 
I mean, until I should say until recently, inflation was rather benign. It was like kind of between two and 3% a year for a very long period. And yeah. now we're seeing a bit of a spike. We'll see if that spike continues or if it goes back to a more traditional level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't know what inflation is going to be. We don't know what returns are going to be. We don't even know exactly how much money we're going to be able to save. So, you know, it's not necessarily something that you can predict with any precision, but they're healthy exercises I think that you can go through. I, I will say one of the questions John asks is he said, should I track my portfolio value off of what he's describing as the nominal growth rate or versus the real growth rate? It would be pretty hard to track it based upon the real growth rate. Like You're going to have to look at your statement every year, see what you grew by, then go see what the consumer price index was and subtract that out and then calculate that in dollar terms. And it's kind of hard to actually track it year by year that way. Yeah. As we're talking about this, I think the bigger value is in getting a basic idea of what you're on track for, both in nominal terms and in real terms. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, when we do planning for clients in our own practices, we usually, you know, we both use systems that use cash flow assumptions and and the like. And so we'll use nominal numbers, but we'll also use inflation growth rates for expenses. But that's helpful because some things inflate and some things don't, right? So like if you were lucky enough to have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage locked in in the last year or two, you could have an interest rate of like, you know, under 3%. And that's never going to change for you. Mm-hmm. So in inflated dollars, your payment 30 years from now is going to be very small compared to what your payment feels like right now. Does that, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. As planners, when we're running this more than just some basic calculations, we want to know what's the nominal return of those dollars, but we also want to know what's the nominal increase in expenses because not every expense is simply pegged to inflation. Right. If you have a mortgage, like Scott's describing, if that's a fixed mortgage, that's not going up with inflation versus maybe you have groceries or gas or clothing that maybe goes up on average with inflation. And maybe there's other things, health insurance premiums or medical costs, maybe that goes up by more than inflation. Right. So we want to be a little bit more precise in our projections to know how our returns as a whole, what are those nominal dollars going to do, but also track the nominal increase in expenses, knowing that different types of expenses are going to increase differently based upon inflation rates or non-inflation rates and even income sources in retirement. You know, if you have a pension, maybe. Exactly. Does it have it, does it does it inflate or does it stay flat? If it stays flat, it's not worth as much each year. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which is another so, component that I know John asked a question more about how to track his returns, but I would also, I think, you know, you, you and I were chatting about this. I would think of it more so as like how to track also your entire balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Because if you are paying attention to one place where real returns are interesting is just looking at like, have I put my funds to work in a place that's helping me stay ahead of purchasing power? Right. Or do I have assets sitting idle? Maybe sitting idle makes me feel good, but if we put it in terms of a real return, all of a sudden we could perhaps not feel as good or it might change our lens a little bit to fund sitting as cash. Like cash sitting in a checking account right now earns either 0% or maybe 0.5% interest. Right. I think we would both tout the reasons to have cash sitting as cash, an emergency fund, 
something to fall back on, a rainy day fund, things for like home maintenance, especially if you have a rental property, making sure you have the funds to go take care of things that need to be fixed along the way so it doesn't disrupt your life. But we also would probably lean into the idea that we don't want to have so much cash sitting as cash because it's literally eroding each year when it just sits idle. Yeah. Yeah. I think that understanding the difference between nominal and real puts things into context nicely for us, where so often many of us think of risk as, am I preserving the nominal value of my dollars? Cash seems like it's risk-free because it's preserving the nominal value of my dollars. My dollars aren't growing, sure, but they're not declining. Whereas to us, that's one aspect of risk. But the other aspect of risk is, are you preserving the real return or the real value of those dollars, which you have to focus on purchasing power? When you frame it that way, cash all of a sudden in the long run can be seen as very risky because you're almost guaranteed. You are guaranteed in many cases to be losing real return, to be losing purchasing power over time. So while yes, we absolutely 100% think that everyone should have an emergency fund, everyone should have cash set aside or conservative funds set aside to fund short-term necessities or emergencies or whatever comes up, you do that because that allows you to invest the rest of your funds in a way that can outpace inflation and can preserve your real return while still being able to weather an emergency or things that come up along the way. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Cool. So I think we've said it all, but anything else that you'd add to John's question here? No, just that, well, the only thing I would add is like, I think even more important than tracking the nominal return or the real return, track the amount of risk that you're taking to help you get that return. (laughs) As you just alluded to, if you have some cash sitting as cash, it allows you to be more risky if that's what you want. But then two, the savings rate, because the savings rate, along with your tax rate, along with what you spend, all adds up to a fairly simple math equation along with debt payments. And if you understand what you, if you can consistently go save a good amount, regardless of inflation, regardless of real return, you will make progress toward being financially independent. Yeah. At the end of the day, it can be a pretty simple equation, just understanding what to focus on and what to know about and be aware of, but not necessarily put all your time, effort, and focus into. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks, John, for the question. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.